this week, we sink our teeth into Pablo Lorraine, director of the new vampire black comedy, El Conde. Plus, the usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast that has taken a leaf out of Millie Bobby Brown's book and employed a ghostwriter to write this introduction. Hopefully you won't notice. Did you say you hired ghostwriter? Ghostwriter, yeah. yeah. You are vengeance. I'm Johnny Blaze. <laughs> I'm ablaze with incompetence, quite frankly, right now. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast. This week, we're back on our in-studio bullshit after our live sojourn last week. Uh, the podcast was up late for those who keep track of such things. The four of you who keep track of such things. Uh, the podcast was up on Monday because we recorded it on Saturday at King's Place at the London Podcast Festival. Much fun was had. Uh, I was there. Regrettably, so were my <laughs> two colleagues of such lethal cunning, our great big fucking nerd, El Conde himself. <laughs> it's James Conde. Dyer. I was about to say, you softened the T to a D there because you bottled it at the last second. No, no, no. It's El Conde and it's El Conde. Uh, it's James Dyer. Hi. How are you? The answer to that question is is kind of a long anecdote and I feel like I don't want to trample on Helen's introduction. So why don't we introduce Helen and then I will tell you why I'm oh, not boy. okay. Here's Helen. Hi. <laughs> Helen Harris right, here. come on, bring it on. All right, let me tell you what happened. So last night I went to a quiz. I went to a quiz run by, shall we say, a major streaming service. Uh, and as part of this quiz, I was on a team with Radio 1's Ali Plum, uh, and a question came up, and the question was, what Indiana Jones film has the longest title? Hang on a second. Title? I, need, I need to delve into this. Who invites you to a film quiz? Well, Ali Plum. But uh, film and TV he, quiz, crucially... Does he want to win? Me? Uh, first of all, first of all, I was fucking MVP on that quiz. Okay, that's not strictly true, because Dr. Sam Summers, co-host of the Disney University po- podcast, is literally a doctor of animation, and he absolutely you destroyed the animation. You can't be a doctor of animation. I, if, I, if, I'm, <laughs> if I'm impaled in a car crash, I want a real doctor, not a doctor of animation. Well, he could probably draw a nice picture of the, of the crash. Do you know that um, technically academic doctors, like PhDs, were called doctor before the original doctors, doctors were? That's right. So doctors yeah. actually are the ones who should change their name, I'm just saying. Yeah. Anyway. Doctor, doctor, can't you see I'm learning, learning? Very right? Good. Am I right? Sure. Yeah. yeah. Could I just say, Hello. Uh, not only would the, I got a football question correct. What was the football question? The football question was, as of the 23 slash 24 season, what division do Wrexham currently play in? And I was like, oh, oh, I fucking know this. And it is. And, and everyone it, fainted. And, and everyone said... fainted. Because, I mean, okay, when I said I knew it, I said, well, because they were, spoilers for Welcome to Wrexham season two, uh, well, they were in... No, the, spoilers for real life. Yeah, this they were in the National ago. League and they get promoted to? at the end to Division 2. No. Yes. No. Yes. No. Yes. No. Yes. No. Where do they get, what do they get promoted to? League 2. Oh, you know what I mean. Uh, well, I, so, yeah, so, Which but, used to be Division 4. Sure, but anyway, I, anyway, I got Indiana that Anyway, right. Indiana Jones title. You've derailed my thing. So, so the question was... Welcome to my world. <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> Turn about as fair play. A two brute... <laughs> <laughs> So, the question was, which Indiana Jones film has the longest title? And when they came, obviously we put the correct answer down, and then when they came to read out the answers, they went, and the correct answer is, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, at which point oh. I lost my absolute fucking shit. Because I was like, I, it almost broke my brain because they were wrong on so many different levels. So it was like, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, you're on a point of order, point of order. A, that's not the fucking name of the film. And B, B, even if it were the name of the film, it still doesn't have as many letters as Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. 
Now, I would 100% have accepted the response. I'm sorry, I've never heard of that film. <laughs> there, that would have no been such, a good comeback. There is no such film that we're aware of, yeah. in which case I'd have that said that been, is... Yeah. yeah, you would have been hung by your own petard. Yeah, I'd have that said, you know fine. what, that's premium trolling. I will take that and I will, for, I will forego the point. But no, no, they went, oh, no, no, sorry, because... And I was like, no, 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 you're either wrong, you know, just on facts because of the IMDb, or you're wrong in terms of numbers and counting and maths. So in the end... They had me escorted out by security, but not before we were given a point for the correct answer. But what I mean, you, what did you come in the quiz? We came second <gasps> by one point. Oh my goodness! One point, and I maintain it is still because they asked how many Kardashian grandchildren there were, and I was like, "Oh, what the fuck!" <laughs> uh, well, I mean, that's the wrong answer. No, no which was turned out yeah. was the wrong answer. Yeah. yeah. I, but I, we did very well. We actually did very well. We were storming at the beginning. We were in first place in the first half, and then we, we were relegated at the end to second place. <laughs> Unlike Wrexham. Wow, okay. Well well done. Welcome both. Well, it's good to be back in the booth and studio, but it was a good live show, wasn't it? It was, it it was, was, fun. Fun. It was a lot of fun. It's still yeah. available right now, and if you want to see the show, it's still available on the King's Place K player, that's what it they is. call it, uh, for another couple of days. You can, you can buy a stream pass to see that. Why would I do that, Chris? Well, because we recorded the show out of order, so you might want to see how it unfolded on the night. Uh, the utter chaos and the bits I cut out quite frankly because of some rude bits that I cut out and also to see Richard Armitage who yes. was one of our two guests on the night uh, but who wasn't on the live show when I put it out last week because he was there to promote his new novel Geneva which is in all good and evil and virtual bookstores on October 12th and so we'll be holding his interview back for October for makes around sense. that time makes sense right uh, but I know that uh, he has uh, uh, an army of fans, an armitage of fans, um, a, a dicky army, uh, I guess you could call it, maybe. I'm not um, sure we I, would. Okay, I'm throwing it out there. Uh, and they may want to see their 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 lovely man. Who was looking lovely. He was looking lovely. He was looking lovely. Was. And I was looking... I mean, I was also on stage. You were on stage. You were, you were I can confirm you were there. bodily on stage. I was bodily on yep. stage. Um, yes, and so that was a, that was a lot of fun, and it was it was good, and we had much good times. We did, and we had Daniel Pemberton there. Daniel as well, Pemberton, amazing composer of. The forgot to ask him about the Spider Verse concert game. Okay. Yes. Well, you know, no, not everybody can shoot shoot hundred. And that's a good score. It's a good score. It's a four star score for a three star film. Uh, we have, we uh, we forgot to mention. We forgot to talk to him about the Spider First concerts, which is weird because we've been talking to him about them backstage. Just before we went, and on, we were yeah. like, "Hey, we got to talk about these on stage," and then we completely utterly forgot. So yeah. he is the Spider First into the Spider Verse is touring the score. The you know they're performing the score live at venues around the world. Mm -hmm. Quite frankly, um, and you can go to the the website. Just Google. It. And uh, I don't have the URL. What am I made of Google? I'm not. I mean, so, but I'm pretty sure it's on Daniel Pemberton's Twitter, for example. It is, but then you'd have to go to Twitter, and then you'd have to follow Daniel Pemberton, and then you'd have to I find mean, the tweet, so and it's time. a whole thing. He, or you could just go to Google. Good stuff. So anyway, they're they're performing it, and they're coming to London, and he's going to be at the one in London, and then it's going to be touring the UK, but it's also touring the US. He's not going to be at every single show because he's a busy man. Uh, but the soundtrack is incredible. So I was I I, I said that I would. Uh, plug that and yeah. so there we are and then we forgot so well done yeah so here it is plug. but also and also Across the Spider-Verse is Across the Spider-Verse now out so. available now I watched that again on the weekend it's so freaking good it's so fucking good it's so fucking good <laughs> it's so it's so in fact and I discussed it with I'm Dr. Disgusted. Sam Summers, not Scott Summers, because that's Cyclops. Uh, Dr. Sam Summers of, uh, of you know, Doctor of, of Animation, animation. fame. Mm -hmm. uh, we were discussing the, you know, how groundbreaking and all good stuff it is. I've got a weird lump in the back of my neck. Do you think you'd take a look at it? I don't know. Is it drawn on? Because if it is, then I'm, he can absolutely sort it out for you. Disney do well. 
right. Should we have a guest? Not a guest. Mm. What do you call it? A question. Yes. <laughs> I was like, Wait, Wait, a guest what? question? A guest question. question. And this guest question comes from <laughs> Jimmy Nail. Uh, right. So I did a panic shout out. And at first glance, I thought that you hadn't come through with some good questions. And then I looked again. You actually read them this time. And I decided that you had. Okay. All right. Scary 78. Can cinema come back from the double hit of COVID and the strikes? Uh, by the way, that's a great name for a band. <laughs> and after, come back. No, COVID and the strikes. And the <laughs> uh, after the news of surge pricing for drinks mm. and Macquarie's, uh, that's Chris Macquarie, it's an excellent point about the leveler of all films having the same price, be they blockbuster or independent. Mm. Can you see tiered pricing ahead? There's been a lot of discussion of this over the years, hasn't there? There has, and there was discussion of this a couple of weeks ago uh, when I... Um, put forth a, a great idea I had and then I cut it out completely this is a runtime thing wasn't it this is a runtime mm. thing I think you shouldn't have to pay the same amount of money for a three hour film as you should for Bambi which is like 65 minutes I think you should you should be able to adjust your ticket prices accordingly so like a, like you think it should be like a taxi meter where they just you go in and they start the meter running and then when the film stops they stop it and then present you with yeah. a bill I think you should take coins and you should and you feed, feed the them into a meter yeah, yeah. Yeah. so it's like you're on tick if you like the first 10 minutes and you want to see more <laughs> so like Paul but- but is you're, you're that increasing. How works, sure. Okay. If you want to unpixelate the film, I'm I'm worried about the incentives. I'm worried about the incentive-based models of economics that are involved in what you've just suggested. Yeah. I would suggest to you that they are very bad in a number of different ways. Okay. All yeah. right. You're also, also, someone... no fuckers going to see Shower, are they? No, they, they would, but you just take a big sack of coins. You'd have to. Yeah. Okay, first so, of all, who carries coins? No one. We are all the queen I want to bring cash back. All right? I want to bring cash back. I want to bring it back. Okay? Because... It's not like sexy. It's not about, good. Old people. Old people. I'm thinking You're of the old people back. I'm, think, I'm no, bringing no, old people back. Don't turn into a Tory and start only thinking of old people. Yeah. No, no, no. We're I, not I, I'm not only thinking of old people. Here. I have to think of old people. Old people don't carry cards they don't know yes, they, do. I, Even they my don't parents carry cards now your parents are vaguely competent i'm talking about are, the real actually, stupids yeah. <laughs> wow i pivoted very sharply <laughs> <laughs> i was thinking for the i was i was really really advocating for old people and then in the next breath exterminate them all but you know that's what you get in the empire podcast anyway yeah i'm just thinking that um i think that you know it it should be a more uh, fair and democratic pricing strategy but the question the question is a good one uh, which is, you know, right now we have we had the the one punch of COVID, which hit cinemas yeah. and hit uh, theater chains and theater companies very very badly, and then you have the strikes, which ain't helping either. Can they come back? Well, yeah. Look, I don't think the strikes have had a huge impact yet mm. on cinemas. It's the it, we don't know. We're expecting a hit in the next few months. That hasn't actually happened yet. We don't know how bad it is. We don't know how much of an issue it is. It might even be that slightly, you know, throttling the giant flood of films coming through will actually allow people to go and catch up on things and get back in the habit of making a point of going to the cinema regularly and not feeling like I feel like there's a lot of people who mean to go and see, you know, a n new drama and then don't pay attention for a week because they're busy and then it's gone and yeah. it's just the, the cinema's full of whatever, again, that they don't want to see. I feel like there is, a, there is a case to be made for having a slightly different releasing schedule, actually, I think. So, so we don't know what the strikes have done yet to cinemas. That's all I'm mm-hmm. saying. Um, if it does, We know what a- they're doing, though, because they've got a great big whacking blockbuster-shaped um, hole in October already. Yeah. In June part, in June part two. June! Thank you. Thank you, James. It's like Pavlov's 
Genuinely, it's it's also funny because whenever in the office Nick is talking about the month June, every time there's a part of me that's like twitches every time he does does it. The June is June issue. June. By the way, should we shoot a Empire Podcasts 2024 calendar? What, like a nudie one? No, not a nudie one. Although if you <laughs> if you tip it upside down, <laughs> I think we should. We should have, like Cliff Richard. Have you a, seen the Cliff Richard calendar? I, I mean, not recently. No, he's on a he's on a cruise ship. Uh-huh. Um, and he's oh, bless him, Cliff. Um, so we could get our, our our pictures from when we went on the Star Cruiser. Yes, yes. and we go. May, that's, may that's, rest that's, in that's peace. No, I'm talking. We get a professional photographer to come and shoot us. And if my clothes happen to fall off, <laughs> wow! I'll do it if it's if, if it's gratuitous. Yeah. <laughs> Calendar do, Girls remake with us three. I'll only do yeah. nudity oh, if no. it doesn't enhance the plot. <laughs> anyway, anyway. Our, our cinema's fucked. Look, cinemas are having a tough time. I I actually don't think that the strikes are the biggest issue. I think there's a whole heap of of uh, things affecting cinemas. I think the the cinema experience is something I hear a lot of people complain about, whether that's, you know, cinemas where technology goes wrong, where, you know, they're the, they leave the lights on. Mm-hmm. Um, also cinemas that are understaffed. So if they're noisy or, you know, people checking their phones or on their phones, oh my God, God forbid, during a film, there's no one there to talk. There's no one there to stop them. To there's them. no one to beat but them also, up. Can't, yeah, you can't really do much. Cinemas. No, but <clears throat> you can't you can't clip them around the ear hole like you used to do in the old days. You know, Judge Dredd, no. three months in the ISO cubes. Could they not solve this using the 40x setup by electrocuting people if the sound they make exceeds a certain decibel? No, that's a level? good idea. I like where you're coming from. Yeah, I'm usually <laughs> against tor- torture, but people who talk in the cinema or use their phones in the cinema—that's a different a matter. Special, special, special hell. hell. Yeah, there is a, a special, special hell. hell. My point is, I, I feel like there's stuff that cinemas could maybe do to help themselves. I feel like that cinemas, the cinema-going experience, is not a lot of fun. For a lot of people, yeah. Uh, in in terms of the stuff around the film, mm-hmm. um. So so maybe cinemas could work on that while they have any downtime that they have. I think I don't want to victim blame here at all. I don't want to start a war with any, you know, cinema chains. I'm not hashtag not all cinemas, but I am saying there are some <laughs> where you know they are massively understaffed, where some corporate boss is massive is making it incredibly difficult to run a good cinema. Yeah, and those corporate bosses should maybe look at their own. You know, failings in Spoiler the meantime alert, here. They ain't gonna. I mean, no, it, they never do. But, but the thing is, like, Helen's absolutely right. Like, when you go to cinemas nowadays, if you can spot a human being anywhere, I mean, you're fucking lucky. Like, because you you, you can, buy the yeah. thing on the app, you scan it against the thing when you go in. It's like, there's not a human as far as the eye can see in a lot of these places. Not right. all cinemas. Not all cinemas. Not all all cinemas. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, but at some, it does feel a little bit like it's like an AI-driven multiplex. I have two locals. There's one that is a big old commercial cinema chain and that has pretty much the problem you just described. Mm. Uh, where lawless gangs of youths <laughs> roam the corridors. Throwing pick and mix at each other. Yeah. Shiving, <laughs> shiving anyone who dares to sit near them. Yeah, with a uh, little, little gummy vampire teeth. Yeah. A particularly sharpened fizzy colour bottle. <laughs> they, lay, they break the colour bottle on, on, yeah, that's it. on a wooden surface. Then try and stab you with it. Um, it's a particularly lovely for sensation, actually. And then there's the other, there's another one, which is a, a more art housey cinema, which is always well-staffed. Mm. By people in polo next. Yeah, but mainly because I'm always kicking off. Yeah, they're the just there policeman. to look after you, actually. Yeah. But look, I, I, I genuinely, I don't want want this to sound like victim blaming, but I'm saying let's try and make something positive come out of this. If there is going to be a slowdown due to a lack of Hollywood product coming through, let's look at, are there films that people haven't had a chance to see? Are there seasons you can run? Can the big box, multiplex kind of cinemas 
replicate some of the things that really work for those art house cinemas. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there are, there are things that cinemas can potentially do. I'm not saying they're they're a solution. Maybe they aren't. Maybe they've all been tried already, and I'm just living in a dream world. But there might be things that cinemas can do to to help themselves during this time. And there may be a way to kind of, I would love to see cinemas just become a bit more integrated, almost back into the community sounds the wrong way but you know the way like cinemas used to be in town centers cinemas used to be uh, a mm. bit more open to people Accessible. passing by yeah. just an, and now you didn't have to make sites. yeah you mm. didn't have to make a special effort to go there and i think that's one of the things that for example the picture house chain here in the uk and others every man and so on have done a bit is they put them back in city centers they have cafes they have a reason to go in yeah. and then they make maybe them a go, destination oh yeah. look there's that that looks interesting i'll go and see that while i'm but here the problem with that and we've said this before is pricing yeah. They're, they're, and you're absolutely right, and you get the higher prices, presumably because their rents also are higher, and they're they're aiming at a slightly different demographic. But the, the problem you talk about, Helen, is real. Like when you have to go up to like a retail park to go to cinema, I don't want to sound like you know old man screaming into the void, but it, they do become sort of like destinations for gangs of feral youths. Like it genuinely, <laughs> it does feel a bit like whenever I it's go like the to Warriors, my, it is. It's a lot like the Warriors trying to navigate yourself between the two screens. But I uh, I went to uh, you know when I went recently <laughs> last week to see a couple of films that genuinely like. I was like, oh my God, like, it's just lots of kids in clouds of vape. And someone was vaping in the screening as well. Oh, what? Which was just like, I was like, come the fuck on. And then two people to my right just would not stop talking all the way through it. So I spent most of the nun two just quietly annoyed, just Mm. with the people around me. And it takes you out of the film. Like, it does take you out of the film. Um, So, yeah, that was was upsetting. I hope that there's a way back. I don't think it's, I don't think that we're, we're exactly... I don't think that the bell is tolling necessarily just yet, but if there isn't a lot of product, I think probably cinemas have tried to put things back in and work as a kind of repertory cinema, almost like a Prince Charles, but I just don't know whether there's the appetite there. I mean, now would be a capital time to stick Dead Reckoning Part 1 back into, mm. into cinemas and back yep, into IMAX, I but... I don't know whether that's going to work. You've also got the difficulty whereby when cinemas used to put on older films, it would be a case of, oh, I don't have that on tape. I don't have that on VHS, so I'll yeah. go and see it. Whereas now, almost every film is available oh, no, it's everywhere. Not. No, I will bring. I will bring. Okay, you're right. There are a lot that aren't. But, but you know, I mean, a lot of the films that they a put lot on the are big, probably, a lot of the big marquee ones. Yes. Yeah. That's true. That's true. So you don't need to. Di- oh, have I got that one? I mean, you've yeah. got it because you subscribe to something that yeah. will have it. I think actually a bigger problem in some ways is the lack of. Um, local newspapers and the lack of readership of the local newspapers that remain. You know, you don't... How do you know what's on at your local cinema without physically making a point of going and looking? I think that's one of the big problems with repertory kind of screenings and bringing things back. How is anybody going to know you've brought them back unless they happen to be at the cinema anyway? In which case, they're not the problem. They're already going to your cinema regularly. So, so I think that kind of thing is there is a problem, and this isn't this goes far beyond cinema, but there is a problem with just letting people know what's out there. And again, especially the sort of busy middle-aged people and the you know slightly less techy older people. How are they going to know anything that's happening? They're not like checking your Twitter account to see what you've just announced. You know, we may be following our favorite cinemas on Twitter because that's the kind of people we are. Nerds. Yeah. But not, you know, not everybody is. And I think there there are these huge underserved audiences who literally don't know what they're missing because they haven't got time to just keep on top of this stuff. And there's no easy way to just come across it anymore. So I don't know. Look, like I say, I'm probably being hopelessly naive in my in my analysis of the problems. But um, But I would say as well, you know, just on a longer term thing, 
the strikes, I, I believe the strikes are absolutely existentially necessary to secure the future of cinema. And, and I'm genuinely not exaggerating with that. I think, I don't know that cinema will survive as an art form without the strikers getting a substantial number of their demands. And and I think that a, a lot more than that will be needed to save cinema, but a lot of these demands are part of that saving cinema. I, and so I, I, you know, I don't think we should kind of blame the strikes for a lot of what's going I don't, on. No, right I don't think right we now. are, are we? Like, I don't think No, no, I yeah. do, and I don't think the question asker yeah. was either, to be honest, but I just want to be very clear on that. I think there might come a time because, you know, I, I honestly do think that audiences will reject in large numbers AI-driven creations. I do too. I do, but maybe... I'm they'll being be again, shit. They'll be shit, um, but there'll be a lot of people who won't care. But there, genuinely, there will be a lot of people who won't care, but there will be a lot of people who will be like, what the fuck is this? And who will be just appalled on a sort of just general moral and ethical level. Um, but I also think that down the line, I, I hope that this strike is resolved in favor of the writers and the actors and they get what they need and they get the safeguards put in place and they get the, the residuals that they, they frankly deserve because without them, those big CEOs don't have the big fat mansions that they live in and the big fat cars that they drive and the big fat yachts that they recline on and, and so on and so forth, yada, yada, yada. But I wonder if this down the line leads to a kind of utopian vision where, yes, you have your big studios who are going to be fucking over the creators in order to AI the shit out of, of cinema. But you may also then have a kind of United Artists type new studio that rises from the ashes of all this, this, this colossal shit show. A little bit like the, the studio that, well, it's not really a studio, but it's a production company is it, that Matt Damon and Ben Affleck are, are, are currently overseeing, mm-hmm. where it is about artists first. Now, I don't believe for a second that that this studio would be making Avengers level movies with Avengers levels bu- level budgets, but perhaps I think genuinely do think there's an appetite out there for you know the fifty to seventy million dollar movies again back on cinema screens, written and directed by people who actually know what the hell they're doing, and starring actors who are physical that you can yeah. actually you know, pinch and punch and poke, I but ag- you shouldn't. I agree, <laughs> but I worry about the, the 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 problem or the downside I see to something like that is that there is a bit of a um, gray area is maybe too strong a word, but you know, do, do those does that kind of purity pledge mean that you can't have, for example, a massive crowd scene? Do you know what I mean? So you you want to have the freedom to CG in a bigger crowd in front of your you know biopic of an interesting politician, but those are technically maybe AI driven people, or maybe the the, the at that point in the future that you see the the cheapest way of doing that will be AI generated crowd. Right, so you you don't want purity pledges if if there's if that throwaway shot of the crowd reacting to inspirational politician would be important to your film. That that's my only sort of you know there's 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 gray areas like that where you might want the freedom to do something without having a sort of dogma style. We, we oh want, God, nobody know. wants that. <laughs> nobody wants that. But that's not what I'm saying either. I'm not saying that these people have to be chased and, and whip themselves in the Opus Dei style every, every morning <laughs> and they must bow before the gods of cinema, a giant statue of Martin Scorsese. Uh, that, they, that they have to genuflict wildly in this direction every morning before they, they call action. I don't think that at all. But I, I do wonder if this is a time 
for the actors and the writers to seize control, seize control of the means of production. Means of production. <laughs> it's, it's, it's well, no, I mean, is, like we talked about last week with with Taylor Swift, you know, maybe or two weeks ago. I don't know. Bypass the studios. But but I genuinely that might be the outcome. Actually, bypass the studios. Yeah. Create your put own studio. Straight into cinemas. Obviously, you know. yeah. I mean, I mean T-Swizzle can obviously afford to do that. But Who, then, you know, I mean, Emma Strikes Back was an independent movie. Precisely. You know. There is a sense that, and I think it's less likely to be a problem with films simply because of the financial barrier to actually creating a film. But, you know, to a certain extent, the large capitalist organizations that facilitate artist work going to market sometimes, sometimes serve as a kind of quality filter. So sometimes. I'm thinking in terms of self-published books. That's Okay, that's true. And I think it has historically been true a lot in film as well, that you do want somebody filtering total nonsense <laughs> out. Um, my, my worry is a little bit um, what gets filtered and also who's filtering. This is too many times to say the word filter. <laughs> the problem is like historically the studios have been run by utter bastards, but utter <laughs> bastards who cared about film. And and my my growing suspicion is that not just the CEOs, I'm not talking specifically about those eight people or whatever it is, but uh, like huge layers of people under them as well are there as MBAs first. They are there yeah. as profit makers first and filmmakers never. And that is my that's my worry genuinely overall and everything every article i read seems to make me more scared about it that they they genuinely on a fundamental level don't care about film this, now, I, I mean, this is partly due to just how much films make and how much they cost as well. Yes, Whereas true. obviously with books, a publisher can take a punt on an untested author because they think they've got potential because what's the most they're going to lose? It's not a make or break. Very little, I can tell yeah. you. As a person who has written several books, they are going to lose so little money. So little. Yeah. Whereas with a studio, like two massive films flop in a year and it's squeaky bum time. Yeah. But also, that is... You know, first of all, they can look at their own, you know, um, mathematics of putting a lot of those costs onto films that sometimes don't deserve mm -hmm. them. I'm thinking of the 2016 Ghostbusters, for example. Um, and second of all, you know, they could maybe make smaller budgeted films a little bit. That yep. might help also. Vive the revolution. <laughs> C'est ça. I'm going to France this weekend, so, you know. Where? Where, Helen? Where are you going to France? Paris. Paris. Gay right. Paris. Yes, I'm going to. I'm going to go the crepes see and macarons and the John Wick steps. Yes, which you will be jumping down and rolling down and rolling falling down, down. Rolling and then you'll down. get to the top, and then someone will kick you back down again. Yeah, I've got. I've got a bunch of people actually lined up to fight me the whole way up <laughs> twice. So That's amazing. amazing. Should be fun. Good yeah. stuff. All right. If you want to have your question read out in the Empire Podcast, get in touch with me on Twitter. I'm at Chris Hewitt. Uh, you can slide into my DMs. You can reply to any of my tweets once you've stopped laughing, of course. Or you can answer a panicked shout out every now and again. Like today, in fact. So Hurrah. thank you for the person who sent in that question, whose name I totally remember. <laughs> movie news. Movie Has news. there been any movie news? That's one unfortunate byproduct of the strikes. Yes, but well, no one think about the real victims here, those mm -hmm. of us who report on movie news. Yes. Um, the, the most exciting thing to me, and it, is, it sounds a bit like bullshit, but in, in a sort of compellingly possible way, which is that um, Murder, She Wrote may be turned into a film. So apparently Amy, dun, Amy dun, Pascal um, has Lauren Shuker Bloom and Rebecca Angelo. What was that? <laughs> 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 
Producer Amy Pascal has lined up the two women who wrote Dumb Money, which is out next week. We'll be talking about then. Yep. Um, and uh, they're apparently working on a script. Well, th- although they're pr- presumably not working on a script right now, but apparently that's who she had lined up to write the script, um, <laughs> except for the whole writer's strike, which means they can't. But Murder, she wrote, though. Yeah. Oh, come on. As, yeah. the, as the world's biggest Columbo fan, you're not excited about Murder, she wrote. No. You are a fool, Do you not, you, sir. You, you're not a Lansbury stan. No. No. <gasps> I can take or leave. How dare you Murder, not she be wrote. a Lansbury stan? No, I'm a Lansbury stan. Obviously, I'm a Lansbury stan. Everyone's a loves a bit of Angela Lansbury. But yeah, no, I could take take or leave Murder, She Wrote. It's, it's got great. a great theme tune. It has a really bizarre crossover episode with Magnum. Um, but no, I'm, I'm not in love with it the way I'm in love with Columbo. It's just, a, it's a little bit... Worthersy, isn't it? It's a little bit. It's a little bit Worthers original. I mean, it but is, but that's where you Columbo. live. Yeah. Columbo's not. I mean, Columbo's vital and full of figure and film. And I feel like both of them were, you know, ways of aging actors still making uh, uh, their SAG payments. Peter Falk was in his forties no, no, no. when I'm he started about, playing Columbo. I'm not talking about the the, the stars. I'm talking right. about all the guests. Oh no, she 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 was great as a as a benevolent home for yeah. for actors who were struggling. Yes, it was it was certainly a, a good thing. I'm not. I'm not wild about it. It's just a bit formulaic and a bit staid. It's like a. It's like a lovely. It's like a nice jumper, but I don't. I don't love it. Columbo. I watch Columbo, and I love watching his the way his mind works. And I am sometimes appalled by the thought of how bad he would smell. Uh, Jessica Fletcher would not oh, smell no, bad. Oh no! Come on, come on. Peter Falk wouldn't smell bad. Columbo would. Columbo, Columbo would absolutely reek. Oh no! He never washed that coat. No, I never did. Oh, that is... You're upsetting me now. I don't like this conversation anymore. This is, this, this is a boon. This is a good thing. This I personally a... think his, his character in Columbo is the same one he plays in Wings of Desire, even though he plays Peter Falk in Wings of Desire. But I think he's basically playing an angel playing Peter Falk, playing Columbo in Columbo. Blimey. Okay. Has there um, been any other no, no, there hasn't. There genuinely hasn't. Uh, today, uh, the trailer, the long-awaited trailer for Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom, is that what it's called? Sure, why sure. not? Sure, why not? Uh, Aquaman 2, the eagerly awaited Aquaman 2, which is actually coming out. I was convinced it was going to be pushed back, and it still may be pushed back, uh, but it's coming out in December, and they're finally unleashing the trailer for it, and that is going to be out after we record this podcast. Cool, we have yeah. timed this very well. There was also a trailer for Pet Cemetery Bloodlines, and I wondered, as a kinghead, how you felt... A about, kingy. A kingy, a kingy, one yeah. of the kingies. How you felt about Pet Cemetery prequel? I have no feelings whatsoever about a Pet Cemetery prequel. You're fine with Why it. Why would you have... What prequel? Yeah, I don't understand what that is, first yeah, of is all. Yeah, just... is that about when it was first used as an ancient burial ground? When it was when it was a new burial ground? Like, how far back are we going? Well, presumably the they're going back to uncover the reason why no one thought to sub the name of the cemetery and mm. spell it correctly. I imagine that's, that's what it is. It's a grammatical prequel. Yeah. Right. I think the answer is kids in that case, rather than <laughs> falling budgets uh, so, in, the, in the publishing sector. Prequel in what sense? To the not very good remake that came out a couple of years that's ago? That's a good question, actually. I don't know if it's a... Because that's the, that's the sibling-swapped 
remake that came out. I don't know if it's a prequel. I guess if it's a prequel, it doesn't really matter, does it? Because the the alterations won't have happened because it happened before it. So it's more of so, an origin story. Uh, yeah, yeah. So a as a prequel, it could be a prequel to any of them because it happens before. Yeah. Mm. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not wild about it. If I'm honest with you, but uh, it's a very, very good book. But I, I'm not in love with any of the adaptations of that book. Mm. Well, I mean, if we're going to talk about horror, we didn't mention this on the live show last week, probably because we have more taste and we shouldn't give it oxygen. But Winnie the Pooh: Blood and Honey oh. Two is oh, going ahead, on. and Evil Tigger. The picture of Evil Tigger came out, and Evil Tigger looks just as shit as Evil Pooh and Evil Piglet. I just, I can't even. All right, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm done. Shut cinema down. <laughs> That's it. That's We're it. done. We're finished. Cinema is an art Shut form. It's down. over. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I had my my grand ideas of revolution and starting up a new studio and stuff, but no, I think we, we've we've had our shot, quite frankly, as a and species, we and we, we've blown it. <laughs> and this is it. Come, friendly asteroids, and fall on Earth. This is. <laughs> did, did anyone hear a trumpet? <laughs> did anyone else hear a trumpet? I hear a trumpet. Oh my god. Helen has just disappeared. <laughs> the rapture is with us. Ah! <laughs> I'd be raptured. Good you help. would be raptured. Help us all. You would be raptured. Uh, we, James and I would be left behind trying to uh, grab onto your legs. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> yeah up. We'd be stuck here doomed to podcast for all eternity. Yeah. Oh my word. <laughs> Oh, that's awful. Why have you done that? Why have you said that? Uh, <laughs> Sorry. How can we how can we stop you from saying it again? Uh, <laughs> just a general reaction there to James on a podcast. Why did you say that? How can we stop you from doing it? Uh, anything else? Is there literally... There's, there's, there's very there's little. Nothing. I mean, the new Studio Ghibli has a UK distributor now, which is that's great the one news, with the but heron, hardly surprising. The Heron-marked film, Helen. The Heron marked sword film, but, but yes, the boy in the heron. Yeah. That was a, that was a wheel of time joke, and it was a good one. It was, Chris, just to let you know. I know. I, 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 yeah, okay. Uh, so um, eyes to die with my little eye. Something beginning with <laughs> heron marked sword. I'm just I'm just glad you've moved on from Alan <laughs> after all this time. <laughs> it's uh, true. I'm not making my Alan the water jokes because I feel that that may have run its course. Do you want to discuss this Bill Maher? Drew Barrymore yeah, thing, it, yeah. which is, yeah. you know, yeah. at yeah. time of recording, uh, Drew Barrymore is being, <laughs> being absolutely dragged from Biller to Post <laughs> on social media uh, because her show, the Drew Barrymore show, I believe is what mm -hmm. it's called, is uh, they've decided to come back despite the fact that they won't be able to use writers. So they, they are technically, although I've, I've read lots of stuff that says that, you know, she's she's fairly confident they're not, they're not, Breaking any rules, or not, you know, because they're not using writers, and because you know they're they're it's a TV show and it's mm -hmm. a talk show, so it's under slightly different rules. Bill Maher today, who's the host of obviously Real Time with Bill Maher on, um, uh, is it HBO still? HBO or Max, whatever the fuck they're calling it this mm -hmm. week. Um, it, he also took to wherever he takes to uh, to say that it's going to come back, but without writers, and he knows the show is not going to be as good, but he feels that the people who Aren't writers and who aren't actors who are not able to work because of these strikes need to come back to work as well. well and so I mean, he's being also dragged from yeah. pillar to post. Yeah, he's he's a. I I don't like him. Um, <laughs> Fair. I yeah. Look, we we had these same kind of conversations in the two thousand eight writers' strike, if you remember. So two of the late night talk shows did come back before the end of the strike without writers, um, and. There, they were picketed, in my view, rightly. And then, but then you have the example of something like David Letterman, who, because he has an independent production company that he made his show through, 
just negotiated a deal so his writers could work. Now, I guess that's not the case for Drew Barrymore. I don't know if it's the case for Will Maher, but um, it's certainly a far more desirable outcome. Just if you want to come go back to work and you're concerned about the rest of your careers, which you absolutely should be, then, you know, first of all, encourage the studios to negotiate. And second of all, if you can, if you have that capacity, you know, sort out your own arrangement. Like it's... That's that's far more desirable. If they want to come back and they think, I mean, yes, I've heard those arguments um, that technically, you know, she's not acting or he's not acting as a presenter. They're just presenting. Uh, it's an interesting argument. Somebody has to write something down usually at some point. I think you have to really work not to. The VMA Awards actually happened over the weekend with, um, I think the weekend, with... Um, apparently no writers involved, but people did seem to be reading off cue cards. So it was a little confusing how that worked. It it, it certainly looked like people were reading something off screen, you know? I don't know. Speaking of things written on cards, did you see that Amy Adams had a placard that just said human on it per <laughs> her arrival character? I thought that was glorious. That is good. That yeah. is good. Uh, Margot Robbie was in the, uh, the, the put on the picket line yesterday. Yes. Uh, and just behind her was Samara Weaving. <laughs> Uh, which I, I genuinely, I'm going to say it, I don't get it. They don't look alike. I'm going to say it. They don't look alike. They're blonde. That's it. There are some photos where they look alike. But in general, there they do are no not. photographs where they look alike because they don't look alike because they've got completely different faces. All right. Good luck with that. I'm sorry, Twitter. Suck it. Take that, Twitter. There you go. That's Twitter, that's Twitter told. I think actually there were several people between them. So you can almost morph from Samara <laughs> Weaving to Margot Robbie. Do you know what I mean? But if you have like the four, four or five of them lined up, yeah. then it's uncanny. If you put them in the right order, then it looks really uncanny. I mean, it's not, we're not, we're not talking Natalie Portman and Keira Knightley here, are we? We're not, we're not, we're not talking. <laughs> Speaking people who look nothing that's alike. That's yes. Okay. No, no, in terms of people who actually look alike. How's that controversial? You're just staring at me. <laughs> I just, like, they look a bit alike. I would say they don't look any Have more alike. Have you seen Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace? Yeah, but they're in the, like, the makeup with the thing. Yeah. I mean, I think the makeup does a lot of heavy lifting there. Yeah. I think if you were to put me in that headdress and the makeup, you'd be like, oh, look, it's Natalie Portman. My name is Padme Amidala, <laughs> and I'm a bounty hunter. <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, so not to what my people suffer and die <laughs> while you discuss this invasion in a committee. <laughs> what the? Me's a liking this. All right. Oh, hey. Uh, speaking of strikes and exemptions and all that, uh, I saw yesterday that uh, Past Lives yes. has, uh, has uh, agreed a deal, an interim deal. Uh, which will allow its cast to do interviews now and Fantastic. to campaign for Oscars, which uh, might stand them all in good stead. So Greta Lee, Teo Yu and John McGarrow will be out pressing the flesh while while people like Killian Murphy will be going, no, yeah. no, <laughs> just watching his Oscar disappear. No! Yeah. Look, historically, they've settled these strikes before the Oscars because they really care about the Oscars happening. So I'm interested to see if it takes that long this time or if mm -hmm. we'll we'll see movement before oh, then. Who's going to blink first? I think the studios. I genuinely think the studios. I hope so. I feel like they have to blink first because no one else is going to blink that at this like stage. It, yeah. it's, it feels... And also it's that sense, isn't it, at the moment where it's already cost them far more than it would have cost them to settle at this stage. 
So now it's just it's just good money after bad. It's like for the love of God, it's, you should have you should have sat at this beginning and saved yourself money. It's just your bloody yeah. And this, every this day you wait, it's costing you more money. And at some point, you're gonna have to do it. So make it as as least painful as possible and just do it now. Because it's the right thing to do. Speaking of staring contests, I know this may not be great content on an audio platform, but are either of you good at staring contests? No, I don't think so. What sort of staring contests? Staring at each other. No, no, but the ones where you're just not allowed to smile, the ones where you can't blink. You can't blink. I think he wants to have a staring contest it, with you, James. This probably isn't the best. Let's go. Okay. Three, two, one, go. How will anyone know if I blink? I'll tell them. No, but you'll just lie. See, look, oh I'm my not God, blinking. Oh blinked. my, he blinked. He blinked. No, like blinked a, he blinked a hundred times. So, prove it. Prove it. Prove, prove I win. Prove I, I win again. I reign supreme once more. All right, should we begin? I win again. Lose there and tell the right. <laughs> 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 Is that another wheel of time yes. joke? <laughs> another wheel of time joke. Never mind. Oh, the dragon reborn. <laughs> You're a false dragon if ever there were one. Well, this is dragging on a bit, so hey. let's have a guest. This week's guest is Pablo Lorraine, who is the Chilean director of films recently like Spencer and Jackie. But a number of films he made in his career, including No, were tangentially about the impact of the Chilean dictator August Pinochet upon that country and its people. And now Lorraine tackles that subject head on and in a very interesting way in his new film El Conde, which reimagines Pinochet as an actual vampire. And it tells the story of what happened after Pinochet's quote-unquote death, which in this movie was faked. Then he runs off and starts plotting. Well, actually, he starts planning his own death because he's tired of life. But then into his life comes a galvanizing force. This is a fascinating movie. Uh, we will be talking about it in the review section in just a second. It's on Netflix this week, and I caught up with Paolo Lorraine uh, on Zoom earlier on this week, and we had a good old natter about a great many things. Relatively spoiler light this, so you should be able to listen to it uh, before seeing El Conde. But as ever, perhaps see the film first and then come back. Here we go, Pablo Lorraine. Do please enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast by the co-writer and director of El Conde, Pablo Lorraine. How are you, sir? I'm very good. How are you? I'm not too bad. Not too bad. Where in the world are you at the moment? I'm in Berlin right now. Okay. Pre prepping your next movie? Yes, sir. Exactly. Excellent. Excellent. Because uh, you've, been, you've been around. You've been Venice, then Telluride, then back to Venice where you, you won an award. Congratulations. I, w I, went, to, I went at home. Um, I went to Chile in the middle. So, yes, I've been... Um, uh, probably in more planes than in uh, in regular bets uh, lately, uh, but um, but I can't complain. It's good times, um, busy, and 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 I'm doing something that I love, and I, I I hope you know something that makes sense for for others too. Yes, absolutely. Uh, what's this period like for you as a filmmaker when you, a film you've worked on for a number of years is finally revealed to the world? It's out there. It's now. It's out of your control. What's that? What's that moment like for you? Oh, it's beautiful and scary, um, um, uh, and it creates mixed feelings because in in one side you 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 know you want to see how the movie connects and 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 see how what you know what's the reaction from from hopefully everyone, but at the same time you want to look away and just let it happen and let it go and and just move on and. And ignore the process. So I, I, you know, I, I circulate in between both extremes. Very, it's very uh, bipolar in me. You know, it's just I, I'm. At uh, sometimes I'm very intuitive and just what is going on. And then sometimes I want to don't want to hear anything. 
So I try to find a balance in, in there um, because, you know, it's just whatever you do, you, you, at least I try to, to be very honest and, and, and to, to bring something that makes sense to me. But at the same time, I, I want a lot of people to see it. So, or as much as possible, I don't want to make movies and keep them in the closet. Uh, <laughs> but so that's, I guess, sorry for the complicated answer, but it's a little bit of both worlds. I'm fascinated as well by by the reactions you're getting uh, from from international audiences. I imagine this movie must play very differently with with Chilean audiences uh, th- as it does than it would uh, American audiences, for example. Um, British audiences, I'm fascinated to see how this this plays. Uh, there is, and I don't want to give anything away, but there is a major character in this who is a figure from British history, and that reveal made me laugh a lot i have to say and i think that'll play very very differently over here than it would in the states for example so have you been have you been observing different reactions depending on nationalities and i I have very good friends uh, producers i have a sister i have a you know a lot of uh, friends that live there and and i have my you know my radar um over the island a little bit trying to see what's going on um because you know that character uh uh had a real intervention um in in our society linked to the main character so all that is not is not a made up um but you know going back to the the reality of the multiple reaction depending on the on the on the country it is very true and and i think one of the reasons why it could have a different reaction is because some countries had had uh, maybe in the last century, authoritarian uh, regimes, you know, and in power, and, their, and so their 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 relationship that they could have, say, in Argentina, Uruguay, Brazil, Spain, uh, Italy, Germany, is different from I don't know the United States, the UK, France, you know. I, the, so it creates an interaction on on a historical perspective that can lead to a present where, you know, uh, in certain countries, the far right is happening. I don't want to get into politics that much, but it, it gets to, you know, as a cinema, as a cinematic ex- exercise on, on how each of our different societies can relate to a film like this. Absolutely. And it must've been, that must've been one of the reasons why you decided to make this film in this way. Now, I, I know that this came about during the pandemic, but obviously Pinochet has left such a mark on, on Chile over the over the years, and he's he's left such a mark on your work as well. But this is tackling him directly. I've read interviews with you where you say that they, you wanted to put a camera right in his face, but boy, do you! Uh, the way that you come about come at this movie, the way that you 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 attack this this character is fascinating to me, uh, and that must have all. It must have been a huge melting pot of of influences pushing you towards this decision. Yeah, it was like, um, are we ever going to do a movie? Uh, uh, you know, uh, looking at him because I've done three that there are uh, sort of periphery characters that whether they were victims or or people that had you know an impact without really knowing that they were impacted by them. Or, or you know, just different ways to be affected by. So can we look at him? Is this has been uh, enough time since he died, or since he did what he did, 
that we can do a film. Uh, some people think it's not. Some people think that, that, that it has been enough. And what is the right angle? And then we went for the satire, the farce, the black comedy, in order to really be able to have the right distance. And then we said, what are we doing in black and white? When we bring the vampire. So we found different devices in order to be able to face him. But yeah, there's a close-up of him. It's, a, it's we're looking at evil um, right into his eyes. And that is probably the first exercise. But, but actually shaping the film, and, and again, we have to tiptoe around the story and how it develops, but but shaping the film, when, once you decide to uh, tell a story and reimagine Pinochet as, as a vampire, which is this wild, glorious flight of fancy on, on your part. How do you go about shaping the film? Yeah, the, you know, there are a bunch of, um, how do you say, pictures uh, that are made by a photographer, Argentinian actually, uh, in the years that Pinochet was in power. And for some reason, he was fascinated to look at these generals, because it was not only him, he was the leader, but there were many of them, wearing these capes, you know, and I was like, what if he fucking flies? You know, and 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 that's how we started. And and then, you know, we just started playing that idea that, you know, because those pictures are in black and white, so it felt it felt it felt very vampiristic, you know, there was like a vampire there. So that's how we started. And then uh this was during the pandemic, and Guillermo Calderon, who wrote, wrote the script with me, and I started to have these very extensive phone calls. You know, I would call Guillermo. And and I would just, you know, throw these and we started to play with the idea, you know, and in our heads. And then some time passed uh, after the pandemic. I did uh, a movie actually about Prince Diana called Spencer. Um, and then that, that this was this idea stayed. And then we talked to the folks of, of Netflix and they were like, yeah, why don't you just uh, do it? We'll support you. And then we went on, wrote it uh, and, and shot it. But um, we, in reality, we had to put it in paper because we had the, the idea um, about this film before um, and, and it was pretty cooked and organized. Uh, it was just, I guess, the, the, the seed um that was on 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 to make a movie about him and then how to do it uh obviously spencer uh, do you do you see do you see uh, thematic links between this and and spencer do you see you know, spencer uh, to me sometimes had the aspect of a horror film <laughs> at times well it's it's it, they're very different movies and but they 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 could eventually uh, have similar tones, but I think they're very different, and they have different uh, ideas behind different objectives, and, um, and and maybe there's a filmmaker in the middle that could, you know, eventually feel for certain audiences that there's a relationship in style and tone, but in reality, they are very different. I I have a. I I I I did a movie because, about Spencer because I think it's just fascinating and 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 I love what Kristen did and the process was the was incredible with Steve Knight and 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 everyone involved and um and this case is different this is about dealing with 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 uh, with the, the ghost of 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 my country and and being able to try to to tackle uh, you know the horror no. Just speaking of Kristen, um, made me think. I, I saw a clip, uh, an interview that you and Kristen did on a red carpet. I think it, it was just after the Oscar nominations were announced. You were about to go to the Oscar nominees luncheon, 
Uh, and Kristen said that she was excited to introduce you to Guillermo del Toro. And I wanted to know if she did. And if so, have you she forced... She said that I don't remember, but she did. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, uh, I've never uh, met him before. Of course, I know very well who he is. And he was very kind to text me and 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 share his uh, um he that he really loved the film and 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 then I think I met him briefly uh, at Telluride. Um, uh, so yeah, 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 it actually happened. Yeah, <laughs> because obviously Guillermo is someone who knows his way around vampires as well. Uh, Kronos, Blade Two, of he course. is. A, you know, he's um, he's a wonderful filmmaker and a very great person. You know, he's uh, somebody that has uh, supported. Uh, you know, from his uh, trinchera, from his side. Uh, uh, our film culture, you know, not only, you know, the one that happens in the mainstream in English, but also the one that happens in Mexico and, and in, in our language. Um, and I've made, uh, uh, movies that I admire. And I think he's, uh, a great, uh, film activist too, you know, and a very bright person. So, um, I'm, I'm happy that he's, uh, you know, he comes from a, a similar background than I do. And, obviously uh, an incredible example how much freedom did you feel that you had once you once you hit upon this idea of depicting pinochet as as a vampire in terms of the story in terms of where you can take the story but also visually as a, as a as a as a visual piece of work all the freedom uh in every level there was just one thing that we needed to protect in order to maintain that freedom um which was to create the right distance with with the character. Um, one of the tricky parts of something like this is that when you're making a movie like this, if you don't have the right tone and the right approach and perspective, and of course here Jaime Adels, there are actually the, 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 the beautiful, precious work that he did, mm. But you need to have the right distance because if there's uh, the mechanic of empathy uh, yeah. eventually start, you start to justify him. And and we really didn't want to do that in any level. Um, there are a number of tools that we use to avoid it. Um, so that was, I guess, that was the key to freedom. Once you can create the right uh, space and the right distance and you're able to observate him in his evilness, uh, then you can really, uh, you know, have characters fly, and you can play with the genre, the genre, and 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 do a black and white satire that can be funny and and interesting to follow. It, it looks absolutely beautiful as well. I have to say, the work that you know you and Ed Lackman and and your production team have done is is astonishing. Uh, well, those guys are really good. It's Rodrigo Vasais, our uh, production designer from Chile, and, and Ed Lagman that came from, from New York to to Chile to to shoot the film was um, incredible. Um, uh, it's it's funny. We were just um, uh, doing an interview with uh, with Ed, and he said that he because we speak Spanish, but we also we have a very weird accent, so it's really hard to get. Um, if you're not, you have to really like be a native to actually get it. Right. Um, so he was like just blinking, you know, <laughs> and and 
but then he really connected and 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 it was beautiful because I felt that going with the process through Ed somehow gave us a lot of freedom um because he was like the universality check as I say you know and like he if he would understand if he would laugh he would be able to light it and to find his own uh way to express himself in the story then our images were probably very universal too so it was a good you know it's a good exercise of 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 cultural combination of different sensibilities how did you approach things like there's 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 some flying scenes there's a a a wonderful scene um towards the end again I won't won't say who but where one character flies for the first time is just absolutely wonderful um from a technical point of view how did you approach that it's practical we don't there's certain things that are made old school uh, like we we didn't look at any of the superhero movies that were released in the last <laughs> I don't know, 30 years we looked to the old uh, superman uh, movies you know the late uh, 70s and early 80s mm-hmm. um christopher reeve you know in these wires and in these uh, green screens so we did some of that and then a lot of the other things are practical and it's basically a very, very huge tall crane with wires and with cameras that are flying and the actors are flying. Um, and so it's a, it's a technique that we study from other uh, sources. And then we finally end up understanding it. We brought a team from Colombia who is very good for wires. And, and then we just spend a lot of time doing it. And um it was just beautiful to find a way to bring it into the story and feel what that was organic but uh, but um i appreciate you say that because i had the same feeling i think it's one of the good achievements of this film is that sequence i know you've said in other interviews as well that you feel effectively this is your last word on on pinochet i think so i think i think i'm done with the subject i made four movies i've made uh, 10 films and four of them are directly related to the subject um, and I think I was able to look at him at the eyes. So I, I think um, it, this is possibly, you never never say never, as they say, but I really don't feel that I have the energy or the mental space to get into the subject again. It's not, uh, it's obviously not a biopic in the conventional sense, but did you learn anything about him that you didn't know going into this? Yeah, I think... I think what what was very surprising. I mean, I mean, we all knew because it was obviously part of the center of the story. But the, the more I got in, I think the the greedy side of his personality and 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 how power can turn people um, into something very crazy. And 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 if that person also has uh, an evil and cruel side, um, then that can be taken to a different level. And but but that we all knew that it's just what it was new to me is how how relevant was he to make our society very greedy i think you know it's like an unspoken thing that i think it's, it's like it's like a stain you know like a rust that 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 he left you know that and it's not only in 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 in, in his uh, sort of side of the politics you know I think that is everywhere, and I think it's part of wild capitalism that he imposed that that just turned us, as the main as the narrator says, you know, he turned us into heroes of greed. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, it's it's one of those reasons why I think the the choice of the narrator is so inspired as well, because it's certainly that's certainly something that a lot of people in this country feel about that person also. 
Well, it's it's the model, you know. It's the model that 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 person and Pinochet and others thought that it was the only way. And I think now uh, many countries are trying to reverse that and never going to the wrong place of, uh, you know, uh, a, a socialist regime, uh, but do have a society that take care of certain element, uh, elemental uh, social necessities that could create a form of equality, uh, you know, a quality of education, health, and things, things that, that feels basic, but, but sometimes in certain... Uh, you know, countries and societies are quite hard to implement. The last thing is, uh, I I know you don't necessarily want to talk too much about your move you're you're about to work on, but how how are things going with Maria at the moment? Oh, we're close to start. We have five weeks out or something like that, and I think um, it's good. I feel really good. I just what what it is. It's not that I don't want to talk about it. It's just what is weird is to talk about it that doesn't exist because I really believe in the process of shooting and discovering the film. So I could tell you just concepts and things that we're chasing, but maybe the movie would be slightly different. And I reserve that to the process of making the film. And once the movies make, you can hopefully share the film and hopefully that will create interest and you can get to talk about it. But every other exercise that communicates something that has not been shot yet, for me, feels extremely odd. It doesn't, I'm not escaping the question, but it's just, <laughs> let us make it first. <laughs> totally fair, totally fair. Hopefully we'll be back here next year and we can talk about it then uh, in the of meantime. Of course. A pleasure, Chris. Thank you. Pablo, fantastic. Thanks very much. Cheers. Okay, that was Pablo Lorraine talking about El Conde, which brings us neatly into the movie reviews section of the show. There's only one place to start, and that is with A Haunting in Venice. Uh, the return of Hercule Poirot as Jessica Fletcher. No, wait, Hercule Poirot as uh, Kenneth Branagh. No, wait, the return of <laughs> Kenneth Branagh as Angela Lansbury. I'm confused. Uh, anyway, the best Tash in movies is back. <laughs> Name one better Tash, Sam Elliott. Damn it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right. I did a really good Chris here, though. Did you hear that? That was really impressive. During contest. Go, Helen. No. Damn it. Yes, hi. Uh, he's back, isn't he? He's back, back, back. He is actually not back. He is retired. It is 1947, post-World War II. Very unusual for an Agatha Christie story. When this did Death on the Nile take place? 1932. <laughs> <laughs> Nile <laughs> She's in denial. <laughs> like Cleopatra's crocodiles. And enough champagne to fill the Nile. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, it's post-World War II. He is retired. He is living in Venice. Poirot just wants a quiet life and has actually hired the baddie from John Wick 2 to ensure he will have said quiet life. Nothing can go wrong there. Has he not seen John Wick Chapter 2? Apparently two? not. It's weird. Anyway, Tina Fey, a.k.a. noted authoress Ariadne Oliver, turns up saying there is this crazy psychic lady, Mrs. Reynolds, played by Michelle Yeoh, and I can't figure out how she does it. She's clearly faking it because we all know psychics don't exist. But how? She has such knowledge. You must come and investigate. Poirot is extremely reluctant because of all the retired thing, um, but goes along anyway into this wildly haunted Venetian palazzo. Um, Enrico Palazzo! Oh, you beat me by a second. <laughs> hey! Venetian Palazzo! It's Venetian Palazzo! <laughs> um, it is literally called, I think, the Palazzo of, of Tears. Is it the Palazzo of Tears or the Palazzo of Children's Tears? 
basically... Either way, it's a downer. On right move, they would suggest renaming it immediately. But yes, there is, of course, a dark history to this palazzo. It is Halloween night, and after a masked party, they get down to the serious business of having a seance and wouldn't you know it, then there's a storm, it gets dark, it gets stormy, and all of the people in the palazzo are are trapped there, and there is a death, and they have Uh-oh. to figure out who done it, and it's all very He actually says the mysterious. word who done it in this, which, which it tickled me immensely. Um, but I, I quite like this, because what they've done is they've taken almost nothing, <laughs> to be honest, from an Agatha Christie story uh, called, I think, The Halloween Party, and they have wildly extrapolated from that they've completely like that wasn't that didn't take place in Venice people die in different ways different people die they've taken some character names basically and very little else um, and they've made it into something that takes a lot of kind of horror tropes and, and sort of haunted house ideas and puts them in a Poirot movie and so it gives it a different tone to all of the Poirot adaptations that we've all seen before whether you've been watching you know just the old films whether you've been watching David Suchet on TV or whatever else this has a much creepier, weirder vibe to it, which is fun. Like, I want, you know, if you're going to make these franchise movies, and everyone apparently is, then by all means, like, at least try and mix them up, at least try and give us something we haven't seen before. Um, Pretty good cast. Obviously, I've mentioned uh, Faye and Yo, but you also have Jamie Dornan, Jude Hill, Kelly Riley. Um, O'Reilly. Huh? Blimey O'Reilly. Blimey O'Reilly. Yeah. Um, And it's, look, I, I had a good time. I... I, it is still a Pyro movie with all the, you know, tropes and limitations that that implies. Um, so none, basically. So none, absolutely Good. fresh. The none. But, um, <laughs> but I actually I there is a none in this. <laughs> There's a none also in El Conde. Oh my god! Yeah, so nuns, many nuns. nuns everywhere. On the run. Um, <laughs> but no, I I I had a good time. I I think it's I think it's fun. A return um, to form. Yeah, I think so. I mean, look, I just didn't need a backstory for the moustache. That's just the way it is. Um, I may be in a minority there. But this one, like, is a bit more straightforward. It focuses on what what he's about and, and on the case itself. I mean, I think there's the implication maybe that he's seen some shit during World War II, which kind of fits the character. They probably would have involved him in something in some way. But I like the idea that he is in a new chapter of his life that, and that this is what gets him back into action. So, yeah, I had fun. 1937, that's when Death on the Nile is largely set. 1937, yeah. so this is 10 years after. 10 years after. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'll be honest, I am surprised this movie exists. I thought that Death on the Nile um, was not as good as Murder on the Orient Express. Murder, murder, murder on the Orient Express. And I, I also didn't really think it made much of an impact because of the time it came out. I think and, that was a lot of COVID though, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, there was a lot of COVID going on. Uh, you know, a whole lot of COVID going on um, in 2022. And I didn't really think that it had, it had really moved the needle particularly. So I was very pleasantly surprised because I do have a soft spot for these movies. Mm. Um, no matter how lurid and overblown and, and sometimes not great they, they can be. Um, I like I like them and I like Branagh's portrayal of this character I like the way he he comes at Poirot and I like Branagh's career as a director is so wild to me it is so bizarre in that he is a very good director when he's on his game and he's but he's capable of going from he's capable of doing Artemis Fowl hmm. and Belfast <laughs> in the same year yeah he's capable of doing that he's capable of doing these great big commercial blockbusters yeah. 
which sometimes hit like Thor, obviously, mm -hmm. and sometimes don't, like Jack Ryan's Shadow Recruit. And he's also capable of doing things like in the Bleak Midwinter and Peter's Friends, these really personal, smaller, intimate movies. But he's also got this kind of wildly inventive visual side to him. Mm -hmm which sometimes he lets his freak flag fly and he does that in this movie. He and really I loved it. Like he al he's always loved a Dutch angle, all those skewed oh camera this, angles. Like there's so much of that in Thor. It, this, <laughs> this movie one. starts with Dutch angles. Yeah, and it finished, and like every, about 90% of the shots in between, Dutch angles all over the place. Yeah. Which is weird because they're in Italy. Hello. I know. Hello. 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 But um, but no, I agree with you. I think I think he really leans into it in a way that works. But well, you have for to because otherwise here. it wouldn't be. You know, Dutch. Dutch. Thanks. <laughs> That's how it works, James. <laughs> Thanks, James. The, the camera stays yeah. upright. You lean the into it. Lean. Yeah. And it. Yeah. That's how it so works. anyway, I, I actually reviewed this. I gave it three stars, but it was a warm. It was a warm high three. It wasn't I think a, you're it wasn't being a harsh. A three. I think you're being harsh. I, I, I think this is comfortably the best of the trilogy. Yeah. Um, I was really genuinely unsettled by it at times. As you know, it it it. Ticking some very, very nice horror boxes. Uh, the mystery was satisfying. The whodunit was satisfying. That great big stupid moustache was satisfying. Uh, <laughs> there are some great shots in this. Some genuinely great shots. There's a wonderful shot where the camera is fixed to Poirot. He properly goes Sam Raimi a couple of times. Where like, or Scorsese, you know, where he's like fixing the camera to himself and to give this feeling of disorientation because... Poirot is not entirely on his game. Something's beginning to affect him in in this. You know, is he beginning to discern and perceive the supernatural? Ooh, you don't know. You you maybe maybe. Uh, you know, and there's some lovely. There's a great shot of the camera. Uh, fixed to him as it whirls round and everyone is out of focus behind him and you're just waiting for something to come in, come into focus. There's some, some lovely, lovely stuff on the, on the technical level. The screenplay by Michael Green uh, is really good as well. He wrote all three of these movies. And for me, it was just a, a bit of a pleasure. Which, given that I was um, sitting in a dreadful, dreadful seat in the cinema, like at, you know, right near the front at an angle, Oof. so everything looked like it was angle. a Dutch angle, mm. um, is is you know a bit of a it's a bit of a surprise in that regard. Then I guess that I that I enjoyed it, but uh, despite that, I thought it was really terrific. I'd go four on this yeah, personally bro. myself. And it's also nice to have a supernatural bent on one of these films. Yeah, it's surprising we need more to Dean see Winchester that the person behind films. it all was Old Man Withers who ran the old theme park. So, <laughs> you know. He would have gotten away with it too. If it hadn't been for those pesky kids. Those pesky kids vaping. <laughs> yeah, vaping in the cinema. Yeah, yeah. That was the telltale sign. Yeah. All right. Uh, three stars then for A Haunting in Venice, but uh, I am wagging my finger. Yeah, fine. We can at Helen. Uh, but anyway, uh, El Conde is next. I think only I have seen this. I think so. Yeah, so I, far. I'm sorry. I, I got it too late to watch it. Unbelievable. The yeah. lack it, of it, it arrived commitment. literally mid morning. Really? So Today? Not, yeah. yeah. Today. Which was yeah. not massively helpful. I mean, in fairness, I asked for it on Monday. So, you know, <laughs> the wheels move quickly, don't they? Um, anyway, let's not pull the curtain too back, back too much. El Conde, Pablo Lorraine's new movie, uh, is completely and utterly man bad shit insane. Uh, it is... Pinochet dead and loving it. <laughs> it really kind of is. It's a very singular movie, this. Uh, yeah, I think if you watch Jackie and Spencer, this wouldn't necessarily prepare you for what this movie is, which is this really stark horror comedy with a very, very mordant sense of humour about 
Pinochet and about how people who commit atrocities in power become addicted to a the uh, the act of committing those atrocities and b the power that mm. that that yields them and then that they then wield and how they don't want to let it go and there's a lot of great stuff in this movie uh, the the performance by the the performance by the Chilean actor who I think is 87 years old uh, wow. Yeah, which is another reason actually why um, Lorraine wanted to make the movie because he really wanted uh, this actor, um, whose name I've completely forgotten, naturally, Jaime Fidel. He really wanted Jaime Fidel to play uh, Pinochet, so he kind of wanted to get a move on, essentially. Mm. And he is terrific. There's a but the, the cast around him is wonderful. You have um, you have the, the, these squabbling siblings, Pinochet's kids, who are basically fighting amongst themselves to get a, a, their their grubby mitts on the old man's fortune once he shuffles off this immortal coil because they, you know, he feels that he's about to die and they want him to die. <laughs> Everyone wants him to die in this movie. Yeah. Um, but it's really terrific. There's some incredible images on this. Like I say, it's it's in, it's it's in black and white. Uh, there is a wonderful reveal. The movie is narrated, so it's it's in Spanish. The dialogue is all in Spanish, except for the narration, which is in English. Hmm. Now, you may, as people who've grown up in this country, you may guess who the narrator is once you hear their voice, but. I'm not going to ruin it for you, but it's once you see who the narrator is and their purpose in the story, it's hilarious. Michael Crawford. Yes, it's Michael Crawford <laughs> reprising his role as Condor Man. <laughs> He's back. <laughs> Frank Spencer. <laughs> Frank Spencer returns in some motherfuckers do have him. <laughs> but this is, I, I, I thought this was terrific. I know we gave it three stars. John Nugent, I think, saw it in... Venice and liked it but was a little bit lukewarm he on it he was haunted in Venice to be fair he was haunted in Venice uh, but I thought this was terrific it's a real swing for the fences uh, the last 25 minutes is just wild and insane and there's some incredible photography I think this might be the best shot film I've seen this year uh, it's it's shot by Ed Lachman who often works with um, Todd Haynes mm. and it's just beautiful Absolutely beautiful, um, but it does not let Pinochet off the hook whatsoever. You know, there, there's a real sense of rage mm. running through this thing. Uh, it's really, really great. I, I thought again, we give it three stars. I'd go four, but I'm being very generous this week. If you are at all tangentially related to Venice, I'm going to give you an extra star. Why not? Why the hell not? Uh, so three stars then for El Conde. James, uh, what have you seen this week? I've seen, seen Love Life. Yes. I have loved life, which is more than can be said for this film, to be fair. Uh, so oh, this is, no, really? no, I'm serious, uh, because this is the latest film from uh, Cody Ficada, who did things like Harmonium and The Real Thing and A Girl Missing. And it's called Love Life, but it is not a film about loving life. And it is not a film about someone's love life. It is a, there should be a comma is what I'm fucking saying. It's love, <laughs> comma, life is what this, it is a film about love and life. <laughs> And it is a downer. I don't know how else to put it. So, so it's not 
love life laugh. It's not love life laugh. In this house, we love life, live love. Laugh. Yeah, it's love life fall down in a sea of existential angst. Like that's basically what it is. So this is kind of is a, it in Venice? It is in fact set in Venice. Yes, they are haunted by grief in Venice. No, it's not. It's set in Japan. It is a Japanese story. It's kind of an intimate family portrait. So you've got Taiko played by Fumina Kimura, uh, who lives with her husband Jiro, who's played by. Kento Nagiyama, and she has this son, Kato, from a previous marriage. Now, Jiro's parents, particularly his father, do not approve of the match because Taiko has this son from a previous relationship. And they make, I mean, they are grade A twats about it as well, like making comments <laughs> about her being like a cast off. Like, it's really, really shitty. Uh, and the film begins with this kind of dual celebration. So Jiro's father is turning 65, and little Kato has won an Othello tournament. He's obsessed with Othello and has become something of this Othello prodigy. This um, is the game, not the Shakespeare play. Yes, okay. yes. He's, he's really obsessed with the idea of motiveless malignancy. He's really getting into the character of Iago. No, it is about like the little the board game Othello. Uh, and so he's won this tournament. They're staging this dual party. They've they've got friends over. They've got signs. They've got balloons. And then, and bearing in mind, I, I didn't see this at all coming. Tragedy strikes in that the poor little kid, the six year old kid, Kata, is playing with a toy plane, slips falls into a bathtub and drowns. Oh my God. Right? And it is the most upsetting, bleak thing you've ever seen. Like, it's really, really shocking. Uh, and then the whole film kind of sleeps into this sort of slow, deeply melancholy account of grief, kind of filtered through the cultural norms as this family tries to to sort of come to terms with this tragedy in their own terms. Like, Jiro reconnects with his former fiancé, uh, and Taiko takes on responsibility for Kita's birth father, who kind of comes out of nowhere. Like, he'd left them, he's a deaf man who left them when uh, the boy was very, very young and had become, since become homeless, and he kind of re-emerges. And she latches onto him because I think in her mind, if she can save him, she can somehow save part of her son. I mean, it's, it's a little formless and kind of vaporous, I think, at times. Like it kind of it it kind of it exists in the moment and it kind of sits and you you sit around and you absorb this kind of miasma of grief that hangs over the whole sort of film like a pall. But it is an interesting look at I think individual people's journeys through grief, how different people, you know, react to to that emotion mm. and how they deal with their own families. Also, like how grief and death are processed in different cultures, which is actually really interesting. Like the ways that might seem kind of alien and indecipherable to us as, as a Western audience, but it's filtered through that very sort of stiff, very proper Japanese exterior and how they how they deal with it all. I think Kimura and Nagayama are both really, really good in this, and there is a, a real tenderness, and I think, and a kind of an emotional clarity to the way this is made. Um, and it does stay with you. It's quite haunting, and it's another one like Past Lives that, that really uses silence well. There's a lot of silence in this film. Um, I would just say don't expect it to be the plottiest film you see this week. Oh, well, I mean, and good by the signs of it. But it is also a massive downer. Yeah, jeez. So, okay. yeah. I'd probably be inclined to give it three, and then Chris could bump it up to a four. <laughs> <laughs> come on, come all. I have many, many stars. I feel very generous. I'm just reaching into my big bag of stars and throwing them out here, left, right, and center. Yeah, sadly, I didn't get a chance to see this one uh, today. Um, I was looking forward to it because of the title. I was yes. like, oh, this is going to be a nice... Oh, love life. I'm loving life. relaxing thing. Who doesn't love life? Yeah. Don't answer that. Yeah. <laughs> Nihilist. Anyway. Nihilists. <laughs> what the fuck? Frasier. I know it was a Fraser joke. Right. Oh.
So anyway, there's a couple more films to talk about that Hell's Bells has seen. Yeah, they're weirdly, uh, there are some thematic similar similarities between the two. So first up is Cassandra, which is uh, a sort of biopic about the Mexican lucha libre wrestler of the same name, directed by Roger Ross Williams and starring Gael Garcia Bernal as, uh, well, as we meet him, his name is Sol and he's he's wrestling under the name El Topo. Okay. Um and basically, he is he is a gay man in a very macho society. There's a lot of muttering about him behind his back, a lot of insults thrown in his direction. Um, and he is kind of tired of being beaten up, frankly, by some of his um, you know fellow fighters. So uh, he goes to a new trainer, uh, Sabrina, who is played by Roberta Colindreth, uh, and who's also a wrestler herself. And she, first of all, starts training him up and, and you know getting him to take his fitness seriously, but also suggests that he should fight as an exotico. Now, historically, the exoticos are a kind of wrestler that exists in Lucha Libre, and as I understand it from this film, please note, I have no expert knowledge here, um, they basically lean into gay stereotypes and they fight as sort of these very flamboyant mm. uh, characters, but most of them through history have claimed not to themselves be gay. So they're just playing this character who then gets beaten up. And the Exoticos always lose the fight. That that has been historically the way it always It feels went. problematic. It feels problematic on a yeah. number of levels. So Cassandro agrees to sort of take on this persona and agrees to lean into this, but he still wants to win fights. And this is pretty radical and pretty you know pretty different for wrestling and this is what sort of makes him a bit a bit of a pioneer in in real life as well as in this film but also what the film goes into in a, in a huge degree is his relationship with his mother Yocasta who is played by Perla de la Rosa and and looks at their relationship this woman who um Basically, bore a son out of wedlock, is is also castigated for that in her local community, has gone through enormous hardship to to raise him and to to have him with her. They have this incredibly close relationship. Um and and yeah, it's about it's about that. It's about the way that affects him. It's about the way his sexuality obviously is seen by all these people around him. Um and and it's a weird thing because I was incredibly tense throughout this film because even when Saul is being a dickhead to everybody around him, even when he's lashing out, I spent the whole movie deeply concerned for his well-being because I felt the threat of this environment that he's in, this incredibly hostile environment. And and so there's a really weird tension. This does not feel like a triumphant sports movie. This does even though he does go on to some success. He fought playing himself by the way, Hijo del Santo, who is like a big serious Mexican wrestler. Um even though he goes on to to success and to some degree at least of fame and fortune, I, I just, the whole time, I was just incredibly tense about what was going to happen to him and what people were going to say to him and if he was going to be hurt. I should also just very quickly mention it's really well shot. I mean, you're talking about beautiful cinematography, but uh, Matthias Penacino does a really lovely job here. There's some really stunning shots. And and I think Roger Ross Williams, who comes from a documentary background and actually made a documentary about Cassandro, I think six or seven years ago, um, you know, has a really good eye for the details that will kind of bring this to life, even though it's wildly fictionalized from what hmm. I can tell. Um, but yeah, um, Bad Bunny's in it too, and Raul Castillo, really good it supporting cast. It must be bunnies. It must be bunnies. Anyway, so yeah, Cassandro, interesting stuff. It, it's kind of lingered with me. I, I find it at times a little bit too slow, but it's kind of still in my head. So yeah, I give, right. it, I give it three stars. Three stars then for Cassandro. And then real quick, because yeah. uh, Boyd, uh, Hilton and Kay Ribeiro are outside <laughs> Right now, and heaven for fame, we wouldn't want to delay the recording of the pilot, would we now? 
So Absolutely Ted, not. So Helen, take your time. <laughs> Walk us through this You're one. You're a monster. Start, start at the beginning. Oh my God. And then very slowly... Yeah. Go through the entire movie. Frame. I think we, we've never done a frame-by-frame frame review in this podcast before. And I think now is the time. Now Hold the is door. the time. Hold the door. He's not getting out. <laughs> this, uh, this next film is Brother, which actually oh, also, brother. also does look at the relationship between a single mother and, in this case, her two sons. So this is directed by Clement Virgo um, and written by Clement Virgo and I think with David Sherriandi. Um, but it's, it's set over kind of three time frames roughly 10 years apart so we meet these two little boys as little boys then we meet them in their sort of teens as the elder one is finishing finishing school the other one's a couple of years behind him and then um in their 20s uh the elder brother's played by Aaron Pierre who's a british actor who is incredible in this he looks like a matinee idol you know the way some people look like they've got eyeliner on even when they don't yes he's one of them right and he just looks like Rudolph Valentino or something anyway stunning stunning guy incredible performance and then Lamar Johnson another incredible performance is his much younger much more timid closed off um, hesitant brother and so you've got Francis the older brother trying to teach Michael the younger brother to kind of stand up own some space in the world, take his place, you know, really kind of let his flag fly. And Michael just hesitating every step of the way, partly, I think, because he's got such this this incredibly charismatic, you know, confident, out there, big, tall, strong, older brother, and he's this much smaller guy. Um, but yeah, it gets into their relationship with their mother, Ruth, uh, who's played brilliantly by Marcia Stephanie Blake. And she is this one we see, first of all, you know, providing this really strong role model for her children, really working hard to keep them, but also gradually being worn down by that over the years. You see the kind of cumulative effects of poverty and racism in this Canadian setting. They are, uh, you know, a family of kind of Caribbean immigrants, and they are now sort of just being continually tested, just tiny, tiny microaggression after microaggression, especially wearing on, on Francis and Ruth as they go through life, and then eventually on Michael as well. And it is it is just a really compelling character study. Plot-wise, there's nothing here that's new. That This has been done in many, many different films and many, many different, you know, with small variations. Mm. But the way it's presented and the characters it's presented by, and especially this cast... Um, I thought were were stunning, and and you know, uh, Clement Virgo does find some some brilliant moments to kind of pull out. There's a, there's a bit where the two boys are climbing like a power, what do you call it, power pylons? You know, those giant yeah. towers, yeah. which genuinely is heart in your mouth stuff. So, um, yeah, I thought I thought this was great. I would I would personally give this four stars. I can't see that we've got a review for it yet, but this is really really something. All right, okay, sounds good. Four stars then for Brother. Uh, where art thou in cinemas this weekend? There we go. Uh, right. And on that note, and Cassandra's in cinemas as well, right? This is a Netflix is, yeah. or an Amazon it Prime. It is an type. Amazon Prime release, but I believe it's also in cinemas this okay. week. Okay. Well, there you go. Uh, all right. Well, on that note, that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun when we'll be joined by... Once again, I have a little to no idea. <laughs> but it will be someone. Uh, it may be Craig Gillespie, the director of Dumb Money but I know I'm doing him next Friday afternoon, so that would be a very, very late drop into the podcast, if so. But we shall see. We shall see. There may be also someone else who might be joining us in the studio, but I don't want to say. Columbo. It is going to be Columbo. It's going to be the ghost Actual of Peter Falk. Columbo. Yes, it's going to be Peter Falk. Well, he's an angel. Yeah, just one more thing, sir. Uh, it's going to be amazing. Anyway, until then, until we meet again, until that auspicious occasion, it's time to say goodbye to my two colleagues of such lethal cunning, 
Goodbye to you, Helen O'Hara. Toodaloo. Goodbye to you, James Dyer, on the Pilot TV podcast this week. That's true. I'm actually not going to plug the Pilot TV podcast. Why? I'm going to plug Pilot Plus this week and say that Helen and I oh, had right. one of, if not the geekiest podcast recording of all time yesterday when we did a spoiler special for Foundation Season 2. Let me tell you, the psycho history was rife. It really was. And, and this is an incentive to listen? Yes. This is, this is an incentive this to listen. This is an incentive oh, okay, to listen. Okay, good. Yes, <laughs> that's right. All right. It was amazing. Good Subscribe stuff. to Pilot Plus. I'm, I'm on it. Amon was there too. God help him. Yeah. It's it's on my list. It's it's <laughs> it's high on my list. High, very high, very so high. You've no idea how high. I'm. <laughs> After saving cinema, then there's a, a bit of a gap. Yeah, and then subscribe to Pilot Plus. Is sure. that what it's called? Pilot yes. Plus. Okay. Yes. Yeah, that's what I've been, I've been typing the wrong thing in the search engine. That, that's, that's probably that's what what it it is. Wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. All okay. Right. Uh, and it's goodbye for me. I'm off to Venice to give it the extra star it deserves. <laughs> it's lovely, isn't it? It's lovely, Venice. It is nice. Yeah, yeah it's nice this time of year. As Indiana Jones once said, ah, Venice. All right. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time. Siri contest. Oh, it's close. <laughs> 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 we can't keep doing this and waiting for them to come in. Well, it's upsetting. Bring the knife to a gunfight. The air conditioning doesn't make this easier, does it? It doesn't, does it? It's drying my eyes out. I can feel my eyes. I actually eyes. don't think I could blink if I wanted to at this point. Is that so. a Taylor Swift lyric? <laughs> well, if you're not allowed to laugh, both of you have lost already. <laughs> Who says you're not allowed to laugh? That's not a rule of the staring contest. The staring contest rule is no blinking. Oh, fuck. <laughs> He's feeling it. He's feeling it. He's feeling it. Feels like scanners. Is he in the Oh, this is an audio This is format. perhaps the best audio device we've ever this this is like, deployed. This is like when the great Gonzo had a rubber to Flight of the Bumblebee, but we, we're not even playing Flight of the Bumblebee. This is our British Podcast Awards clip for next year. Yeah, it is. Just yeah. the sound of a staring contest. I can't lose. I can't lose. I must not lose. You must not fear. Did Here I blink? Did I just blink? Did Here I blink? You, I think you did, actually. Yes. <laughs> Victory! Shame upon my family! (laughs) Thanks for listening. See you next week. Bye! (laughs) 